This is Justin Ford for From the Frontline. Tonight we are dealing with the real story behind the attack on Pearl Harbor. In the studio with me is Dr. Peter Hammond, the founder of Frontline Fellowship, who has been involved in serving persecuted Christians for over 40 years in 38 countries. Dr. Hammond, before we proceed, please give the audience a very quick overview of two naval history questions that have to be answered to fully understand the attack on Pearl Harbor. Two questions amongst others that you will be answering in detail during this show. Yes, so in order to understand Pearl Harbor, of course we're approaching 7th of December, marks this uh, anniversary of this attack in 1941, which apparently launched America into the Second World War. Well, from a strategic point of view, to understand Pearl Harbor, we need to determine what inspired the Japanese to undertake undertake this attack using the specific weapons they used, such as torpedoes, um, and um, ship-based air um, attack on a fleet at anchor, and whether such a raid was really unprecedented, or whether there were similar attacks in the past, because these two questions are important. Because if there had been similar attacks in the past, you would have assumed that the United States Navy specialists and stra- strategists would have been aware of naval history and naval pre- precedents, and they should have factored them into both the daily operations and long-term planning. Because right now, what we've been told is this is an unprecedented, unforeseeable uh, event and uh, treacherous, a day that'll live in infamy. And there was absolutely no warning whatsoever and nobody could have foreseen this. And, well, um, as we will see, that's just not really so. So what did inspire the Japanese to attack using the particular weapons they used? Well, you have to go back to 1940. So on the 11th, into the 12th of November 1940, British naval force under Admiral Andrew Cunningham, including the aircraft carrier HMS Illustrious, launched ferry swordfish biplanes. Uh, these were torpedo bombers. This is in the Mediterranean Sea to attack the Regina Marina, the battle fleet of the Italian military at anchor in the harbour of Taranto, which is a city located in the south of Italy, on the instep of the heel of the Italian Buche Peninsula, so in the region of Puglia. So the battle on Toronto is very important because despite the shallow depth of the water, the aerial torpedoes proved devastatingly effective and it crippled the Italian Navy, which lost half its capital ships in one night. The Royal Navy raid on Toronto Bay marked the ascendancy of air power over sea power. Up to then, sea power was considered supreme. And most of the experts said there's no way that an air force could pose a real threat to battleships. Well, the fleet air arm proved to be the Navy's most devastating weapon, and so Taranto should have changed naval thinking worldwide. As the Imperial Japanese Navy had initially been trained by the British Royal Navy, and as the Japanese Imperial Navy had studied the Royal Navy's tactics and strategies most carefully, it should have been obvious that the Imperial Japanese Navy, the third most powerful navy in the world in 1941, after Britain and America, with 10 aircraft carriers, that certainly one of the most powerful uh, aircraft carrier uh, fleets in the world, you'd expect the Japanese Imperial Navy to begin practicing with torpedo bombers, which I did, and to carefully evaluate the possibility of them being used against the American Pacific Fleet based in Pearl Harbor, because Japan had the largest, most modern carrier fleet in the world in 1941. By comparison, the United States had seven aircraft carriers, only three of which operated in the Pacific, and Britain had eight aircraft carriers, of which only one was operational in the Indian and Pacific Oceans. Uh, That's between the Pacific and Indian Oceans, which are two huge oceans. So actually, uh, when you consider who trained the Imperial uh, Japanese Navy and how 
trained they were. In fact, they, they reflected the Royal Navy. If anyone's ever seen films like uh, Tora, Tora, Tora and so on, they would have thought, boy, their uniforms look exactly like the Royal Navy and their traditions look like the Royal Navy. And that's because they were trained by the Royal Navy. Uh, Dr. Hammond, you've answered the first of the two questions posed at the beginning of the show. That is, what inspired the Japanese to use aerial torpedoes? Now, what about the second question? Were there any precedents for a raid on an opponent's harbour? Yes. Um, I mean, especially the idea of raiding uh, a neutral country or a country that's officially aligned, uh, you know, without declaration of war. So consider Miraz el Kabir. 17 months before Pearl Harbor, the British Royal Navy attacked the French fleet at anchor at the coast of French Algeria. The Battle of Meres el Tabera on the 3rd of July 1940 resulted in the death of over 1,297 French servicemen. It resulted in the sinking of a French battleship and the damaging of five other ships of the French Navy. The combined air and sea attack was carried out against Britain's official ally, France. So this should kind of surprise one. Amazing, most people have never heard of it. Uh, the attack remains controversial and it created a lot of hostility between France and Britain. Britain argued that the times were desperate, invasion seemed imminent, and the British government simply could not afford to risk Germany seizing control of the French fleet. So the prominent British motive was thus to uh, deprive Germany of potentially taking hold of the French fleet, even though this was actually in Free France and in Algeria at that, it wasn't even in, in Europe. And so uh, the, the British said their motive was dire necessity and self-preservation. However, the French insisted that as their terms of surrender with Germany did not require them handing over their fleet, which was still in French-controlled territory, the British action, they said, was treacherous. So French ships that were in Alexandria, that's in Egypt, and believed that they were allies of Britain were suddenly shocked to be blockaded, bombarded, and seized by the Royal Navy at the same time. Also on the 3rd of July, French ships in Plymouth and Portsmouth, England, were boarded and captured. And this included the French submarine Socrul, uh, the largest submarine in the world at that time, and four other submarines in the battleships Paris and Corbeil, destroyers Triumphant and Leopard. Some officers and sailors were killed in the struggles. So these attacks on the French allies of Britain were justified by the British strategy of Copenhagen the fleet. Dr. Hammond, please explain the meaning and the origin of the term Copenhagen the fleet. Well, here you've got to look at Admiral Horatio Nelson. Admiral Horatio Nelson his famous Battle of Copenhagen, 2nd of April 1801, was a clear inspiration for the Japanese attacks on Pearl Harbor in 1941. So, you know, 140 years earlier, although Denmark was officially neutral during the Napoleonic Wars, Britain feared that Denmark's navy may be seized by the French if Denmark fell to the French. I mean, there's a few ifs there. Uh, Denmark had a powerful navy, and the British wanted to be sure they were always stronger than the next two naval powers combined. So the Copenhagen, uh, the fleet, the Battle of Copenhagen was the result of multiple failures of diplomacy. With Britain enforcing a strict blockade of France and any country trading with France, even neutral countries like Denmark, Sweden and Prussia, they were regarded as legitimate targets by the Royal Navy. So Admiral Sir Hyde Parker and Vice Admiral Horatio Nelson led the attack on the Danish capital Copenhagen. The British attack, during which Admiral Nelson famously placed the telescope to his blind eye, ignoring the command to withdraw, was, from the British perspective, spectacularly successful. Without ideas, you know, he turned a blind eye to it. Well, that's what Admiral Nelson literally did, turned a blind eye to the order to withdraw. And uh, 1,600 Danish soldiers and sailors were killed or wounded. Most of the Danish Navy were either sunk, 
severely damaged or captured. And although ostensibly neutral, Denmark was again attacked by the Royal Navy on the 16th of August through to the 5th of September 1807, when the Royal Navy bombarded Copenhagen, seized the Danish fleet as a precaution just in case Denmark did choose to join the French. Well, on this occasion in 1807, 3,000 soldiers and civilians, including 195 children at Copenhagen, died as a result of the bombardment. Now, as the majority of the Danish army was actually at the southern frontier to protect against a possible attack from the French, the second assault on a neutral country was quite a scandal at that time. To sum up what we have just learned so far, the British pioneered the use of attacking an opponent's navy with aerial torpedoes dropped from aircraft that had taken off from aircraft carriers and that the British have a history of using treachery and preemptive attacks to cripple other nations' navies, including those of neutral nations and their allies. Furthermore, the Japanese Navy would have been well-versed in these tactics as they had been trained by the British Navy. Are you implying that the Americans should have anticipated a torpedo attack from the Japanese? Yes, certainly. Knowing that the Imperial Japanese Navy was modelled on the Royal Navy, these famous battles, strategies, famous tactics of Copenhagen the fleet, of even neutral countries where a potential threat was perceived, including against Britain's French allies and most tellingly at the Battle of Toronto, where aircraft launched from an aircraft carrier using torpedoes that crippled a battle fleet, all of this should have been taken into consideration. The claim that no one could have anticipated torpedo attacks in the shallow waters of a harbour before the 7th of December 1941 is false. The British had proved that torpedoes could be effective in the attack on the Italian Navy at Toronto, 11th of November 1940. The Royal Navy used swordfish biplanes to deliver the torpedoes. The U.S. Navy had discussed the new threat in the June 1941 memorandum. Torpedo nets were considered to be installed in Pearl Harbor as a precautionary measure. Admiral Kimmel and his staff testified that the decision not to install torpedo nets and booms had been made by the Navy Department in Washington, D.C. It was not a Hawaii decision to not put up these torpedo nets. So there are also many documents relating to Pearl Harbor which are still classified by the United States government and still have not been made public. Many of the documents were destroyed during the war. Some of the public records of the United Kingdom containing Churchill's most secret wartime intelligence briefs were marked as closed for 75 years, including those sections dealing with events from November 1941 through March 1942. At the beginning of the show, and, and just answering the question now, you mentioned that there have been claims that no one could have anticipated torpedo attacks in shallow water before Pearl Harbor. Can you just tell us more about the source of those claims? Yes, well, people who've watched films like Pearl Harbor and Tora, 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 these American war films, tend to ignore these historic precedents and pretend that the attack on Pearl Harbor was both unprecedented and unexpected and the first surprise attack by aircraft on ships. Well, as a result, generations have been deceived to think that Pearl Harbor was a treacherous, unexpected, unprecedented attack, a day that will live in infamy, to quote, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Well, the Bible tells us, 1 Corinthians 10, Now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things, as they also lusted. Now all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition. You mentioned that the U.S. leadership were aware that Pearl Harbor was vulnerable to a torpedo attack, but what but that it was decided not to install torpedo nets and booms. Why was this? Was it incompetence or something even more troubling and sinister? Oh, it would be nice to think it wasn't competence, uh, which is bad enough, but um, um, treachery um, and treason becomes even more serious. In September 1944, while the war was still on, 
John Flynn, a member of the America First Committee, published The Truth About Pearl Harbor, which stated, amongst other things, Rear Admiral Frank Beatty, who at the time of Pearl Harbor attack was an aide to the Secretary of the Navy, Frank Knox, testified, prior to the 7th of December, it was evident even to me that we, America, were pushing Japan into a corner. I believe it was the desire of President Franklin Delano Roosevelt and Prime Minister Churchill that we get into a war, as they felt their allies could not win without us. By the allies, they're talking about Russia, because Russia was being flattened at that stage in the Operation Barbarossa. And our allies, in other words, Soviet Union, would not win without us, and all our efforts to cause the Germans to declare war on us, that's America, had failed. The conditions we imposed upon Japan were so severe that we knew that that nation could not accept them. We were forcing Japan so severely that we could have known that she would react towards the United States. All her preparations in a military way, and we knew the general imports pointed that way. And also quoted in The Truth About Pearl Harbor, published in 1944, Jonathan Daniels, FDR's administrative assistant at the time of Pearl Harbor, presented an eyewitness viewpoint. The blow was heavier than he had hoped it would necessarily be, but the risks paid off. Even the loss of life was worth the price. Can you believe it? And that's also quoted in 1941, Pearl Harbor Sunday, the end of an era. Uh, in Day of Deceit, another book, uh, this one by Robert Stinnett, a memorandum prepared by Commander McCullen stated <coughs> that a memorandum issued in the immediate pre-war period stated that only a direct attack on U.S. interests would sway the American public or Congress to favor direct involvement in the European war. Anderson and Secretary Knox offered eight specific plans to aggrieve or provoke the Japanese empire. If by these means Japan could be led to commit an overt act of war, so much the better. This is quoting from the McCullen Memorandum of 7th October 1940, which, by the way, remained classified until 1994. Admiral James Richardson was fired by President Roosevelt for complaining about the President's order to station the Pacific Fleet in Pearl Harbor. Admiral Richardson blamed the President for the initial defeats in the Pacific as direct, real, and personal. Richardson believed that stationing the Pacific Fleet, which normally would be in, in um, uh, San Diego on the Californian coast, stationing the Pacific Fleet in Pearl Harbor made the ships extremely vulnerable to attack and provided a poor and non-strategic defense. No reasonably informed person, I'm still quoting from this book, no reasonably informed person can now believe that Japan made a villainous, unexpected attack on the United States. Quoting from uh, British historian Captain Russell Grenfell in Main Fleet to Singapore and in President Herbert Hoover's Freedom Betrayed, uh, we read this, an attack by Japan was not only fully expected, but it was actually desired by the Roosevelt administration. It is beyond doubt that President Franklin Delano Roosevelt wanted to get his country, the United States, into the war, but for political reasons was most anxious to ensure that the first act of hostility came from the other side, from Japan, for which he caused increasing pressure to be put upon the Japanese to the point that no self-respecting nation could endure without resort to arms. Japan was meant by the American president to attack the United States, and as Mr. Oliver Littleton, then British Minister of Production, said in 1944, Japan was provoked into attacking America's Pearl Harbor. It is a travesty of history to say that America was forced into the war. Did the United States intelligence services have any foreknowledge of the specific attack on Pearl Harbor? 
Actually, yes, they did. Captain Elif Stafford, U.S. Navy in charge of the communications security section of Naval Communications in Washington, D.C., testified before the Admiral Hart Board that on the 4th of December 1941, we received definite information from two independent sources that Japan would attack the United States and Britain at 9 p.m. Washington time, 6 of December 1941. We received positive information that Japan would declare war against the United States at a time to be specified thereafter. This information was positive and unmistakable and was made available to military intelligence virtually at the moment of its decoding. Finally, at 10.15 a.m. Washington time, 7th of December 1941, we received positive information from Signal Intelligence Services War Department that the Japanese declaration war would be presented to the Secretary of State at 1 p.m. Washington time. That date, the 7th of December, when it was 1 p.m. in Washington, D.C., it would be daybreak in Hawaii and approximately midnight in the Philippines, which indicated a surprise air raid on Pearl Harbor. In about three hours, President Roosevelt had ample time to broadcast a warning. An army inquiry conducted in July to October 1944 condemned negligence by General Marshall and other senior officers for having prior knowledge of the attacks from the intercepts and for not having alerted the military command of Pearl Harbor. Congress was not satisfied with the military investigations and reports, and from November 1945 to May 1946, the Congressional Pearl Harbor investigation, a minority report by Senate members of the committee, condemned the endeavor to throw as soft a light as possible on Washington. And so again, quoting from Freedom Betrayed, this is, remember, written by President Herbert Hoover, the immediate predecessor to uh, FDR. So quoting from Freedom Betrayed book, the Roberts Commission report was so hasty, so inconclusive and incomplete. Some witnesses were examined under oath, others were not. Much testimony was not even recorded. Several records were missing and most inadequate explanations were supplied. Army and Navy information indicated growing imminence of war was delivered to the highest authorities, including the president. The fatal error of Washington was to undertake a world campaign and world responsibilities without first making provision for the security of the United States, which was their prime constitutional obligation. High Washington authorities did not communicate to Admiral Kimmel or General Short, who were the commanders respectively of the Navy and the Army uh, on Pearl Harbor, adequate information of diplomatic negotiations and of intercepted diplomatic intelligence, which, if communicated with them, would have informed them of the imminent menace of a Japanese attack in time for them to fully alert and prepare the defense of Pearl Harbor. The failure to perform the responsibilities indispensably essential for the defense of Pearl Harbor rests upon Franklin Delano Roosevelt, the president. Henry L. Stimson, he's um, in charge of Secretary of War, Frank Knox, Secretary of Navy, and George C. Marshall, who was Chief of Staff of the U.S. Military. Dr. Hammond, a picture is appearing in which the American people have a terrible enemy that would stop at nothing to achieve its aims, and that enemy was not actually the Japanese. Well, this is the conclusion of President Herbert Hoover in his book Freedom Betrayed and many others. George Morgenstern in his book Pearl Harbor, The, Secret, the Story of a Secret War, published in 1947, wrote, With absolute knowledge of war, they, the leadership, refused to communicate that knowledge clearly, unequivocally, and in time to the people in the field upon which the blow would fall, including, um, of course, Pearl Harbor, uh, but also the Philippines. Pearl Harbor provided the American War Party 
with a means of escaping dependence on a hesitant Congress in taking a reluctant people into war. Pearl Harbor was the first action of an acknowledged war and the last battle of the secret war, upon which the administration had long since embarked. I mean, the United States government had actually been involved in a secret war and was wanting to get America into war, and in fact was already helping uh, not just Britain in the war, but helping the Soviet Union with vast amounts of aid. The secret war was waged against nations which the leadership of this country had chosen as enemies months before they became formal enemies by declaration of war. It was waged also by psychological means, by propaganda and by deception against the American people themselves. The people were told that acts which were equivalent to war were intended to keep the nation out of war. Constitutional processes exist only to be circumvented until finally the war-making power of Congress was reduced to the act of ratifying an accomplished fact. Well, President Herbert Hoover declares in his book Freedom Betrayed, it can never be forgotten that three times during 1941, Japan made peace offers for negotiation. America never made one unless the futile proposal to Emperor the day before Pearl Harbor could be called peace. A peace could have been made in the Pacific that could have saved China from ravishment and would have protected the American Pacific flank. If Franklin Delano Roosevelt was still determined to carry out his undeclared war with Germany until it provoked reprisals. The protection of the Pacific Fleet and the Pacific Ocean was the only sane course. It would have limited our engagement in any case to the European theater. But as a result of this policy, an undeclared war upon Japan, we suffered the greatest military defeat in our history with immeasurable consequences. So public opinion, and again, I'm still quoting from President Herbert Hoover in his book, Freedom Betrayed, public opinion was overwhelmingly against our being involved in the war up to the day of Pearl Harbor. America came into World War I 33 months after its outbreak. She came to World War II 27 months after its start. The processes and the months of lag were the same. The appeal to crusade for freedom, for independence of nations, for lasting peace, the same pictures of atrocities, the fanning of hate, and above all, the mass of lies and stimulation of fear of invasion, they were identical. But in World War I, the people believed it. In World War II, the people believed much less of it, and they believed much more that they were being deliberately pushed into war. They dimly recognized that they were being drowned in the mills of power politics and the personal ambitions of men. All of that is a quote from President Herbert Hoover in Freedom Betrayed. You mentioned that the Japanese made um, overtures for peace, um, which suggests that they weren't as hell-bent on going to war as the United States le leadership. Can you just elaborate a bit on those overtures? Yes, that doesn't seem to fit the narrative we get in so many Hollywood movies, but take General Douglas MacArthur. He was convinced that the financial sanctions in July 1941 were not only provocative, but that Japan was bound to fight even if it were suicide unless they could be removed, as the sanctions carried every penalty of war except killing and destruction, and no nation of dignity could accept that for long. So General MacArthur said President Roosevelt could have made peace with Konyai, who was the Prime Minister, in September 1941. He could have obtained all of the American objectives in the Pacific and the freedom of China, and probably even Manchuria. Konyai was authorized by the Emperor to agree to complete withdrawal, even from Manchuria, to secure peace with America. So President Herbert Hoover, in his Freedom Betrayed documents, President Roosevelt's contemptuous refusal of Japanese Prime Minister Konyai's proposals for peace in the Pacific, September 1941, was a lost opportunity. The acceptance of these proposals was prayerfully urged 
by both the American and British ambassadors in Japan. The terms Cognac proposed would have accomplished every American purpose except possibly the return of Manchuria, and even this was thrown open to discussion. The cynic will recall that Roosevelt was willing to provoke a great war on his flank over this remote question of Manchuria, and then in the end gave Manchuria away to the Soviet Russians anyway. Basically, America betrayed Manchuria into the hands of the Soviet Union, just like they betrayed the whole of Eastern Europe into the hands of the Soviet Union in the Second World War. Literally held back their troops from liberating uh, Eastern Europe, held back Patton's Third Army, who were trying to get uh, to uh, Berlin first. And they were already in Czechoslovakia, liberating Czechoslovakia, being told, withdraw. That's for the Soviets and so on. And, you know, like what the Yalta Agreement did to, to Eastern Europe, so also they betrayed Manchuria to the Soviet Union. So just like in the First World War, Britain claimed they were going to war, the British government claimed they are going to war to protect Poland. But at the end of the war, Churchill is part of betraying the whole of Poland and all of Eastern Europe into the hands of Stalin, which was vastly worse. So Poland didn't get any benefit, well, Manchuria certainly didn't either. So in Herbert Hoover's Freedom Betrayed, General Douglas MacArthur's views are reported that the whole Japanese war was a madman's desire to get us into war. MacArthur was convinced that the financial sanctions of July 1941 were not only provocative, but that Japan was bound to fight even if suicide, even unless they could remove those sanctions as the sanctions carried every penalty of war except killing and destruction and a nation of dignity uh, could take them or accept them very long. So you can hardly accuse General Douglas MacArthur of being a pacifist. <laughs> He's a real serious soldier, spent his whole life fighting. But he saw the um, Pacific War, the war against Japan in, in the East, as a madman's desire to get us into war. And he indicted President Franklin Delano Roosevelt for that. Earlier in the show, you mentioned that Roosevelt and his cronies were scheming to get the United States into the war against Germany. Was that ultimately what all this um, scheming was about? It must have been. Uh, you, you, you can see that because... Herbert Hoover documents in Freedom Betrayed that the American military officials strongly urged FDR to accept the three-month standstill agreement offered by the Emperor of Japan in November 1941. Japan was alarmed at the threat of the Soviet Union, and a 90-day delay could have kept war out of the Pacific because Japan wanted an agreement of three months. None of us will make any moves militarily on either Japanese or the American side. And uh, Japan was alarmed at the threat to the Soviet Union, and Secretary of War Stimson, in his diary, disclosed that Franklin Delano Roosevelt and his officials were seeking for a method to stimulate or provoke an overt act of aggression from the Japanese. So to quote in Freedom Betrayed again, that Secretary of State Hull issued his foolish ultimatum and we were defeated at Pearl Harbor by President Roosevelt insisting that the Chinese Premier, Chiang Kai-shek, include Mao Zedong's communists in a coalition government and Roosevelt's secret agreement at Yalta to betray Mongolia and Manchuria to Russia. Future generations were betrayed. All of China was sacrificed to the communists in the years of President Truman at the insistence of his left-wing advisers and General Marshall. The Second World War ended with 450 million Asiatic people betrayed under communist dictatorship. All of that quoting from President Herbert Hoover's Freedom Betrayed book. Also quoting from there, uh, President Roosevelt's leanings towards Stalin and the communists began with the recognition of the Soviet Union immediately after taking office in 1933. During the 15 years prior to uh, recognition, democratic and republican administrations alike 
had barred any relationships with a country that had returned huge numbers of mankind to slavery and was constantly conspiring against the welfare of other people. So by President Roosevelt recognizing the Soviet Union, he gave certain respectability in the family of nations, but also of importance. By that act, Roosevelt opened the door to communist penetration and conspiracies in the United States. Herbert Hoover, in Freedom Betrayed, declared, I'd warned the American people time and again against becoming involved. I stated repeatedly its only end would be to promote communism over the earth, and we would impoverish the United States and the whole earth. The situation in the world today is my vindication in opposing Roosevelt's war policies in the Second World War. Dr. Hammond, what resources can you suggest for listeners who want you to delve deeper into the truth about Pearl Harbor? Well, one primary source document is the over 900-page Freedom Portrayed book by Herbert Hoover. It's a massive book and written by someone with the standing of uh, President Herbert Hoover, who's an outstanding person who saved millions of people from starvation, both the First and Second World War, with his uh, very good uh, campaigns of humanitarianism, raising food for people starving and suffering in Belgium and Finland and so on during the Winter War. Well, uh, Herbert Hoover, with his incredible uh, background, um, his insights and his documentation, it's absolutely, this smashes all the narrative about uh, the Second World War. It makes it clear that America wasn't dragged into the Second World War reluctantly. But the United States government, meaning Franklin Delano Roosevelt's government, actually cajoled and provoked a Britain, Poland, France into the First World War. And uh, they put up and bribed Poland to refuse Germany's offers uh, for a settlement over uh, uh, Danzig and the Danzig Corridor. And provoked and put up money and bribed basically Britain and France to give a war guarantee to Poland. And offered all sorts of things, which of course they reneged on later, um, uh, for Poland uh, to keep fighting. And in the end, betrayed them to the Soviet Union under Stalin. There's so much in it that just shows that far from the narrative of America being dragged into war, the US President Franklin Delano Roosevelt and his White House conspired to get the world at war in Europe and to then drag the American people into war by provoking Japan into waging war on the United States. And you can see the proof of this because what happened? Immediately after attacking Pearl Harbor, you would have thought America's been attacked by Japan. They're going to put 100% of their material on fighting Japan. No, not even 10% of the U.S. military went to the Pacific Theater. 90% was rushed to Europe to aid the Soviet Union and uh, Britain in the war against Germany. And so considering America wasn't attacked in Europe, America wasn't attacked by Europe. America was attacked by Japan, even if they'd provoked it. That was just a means to getting into war against Germany. And so the very fact that... You would have thought in 1941, uh, with the December the 7th attacks on Pearl Harbor and on the Philippines, remember America had an army in the Philippines under General MacArthur, and there were, were many tens of thousands of U.S. forces in the Philippines needing resupply, needing reinforcement, needing equipment. They were ignored. They were abandoned. They were, they were reduced to starvation. They were reduced to running out of bullets and ammunition. And in the end, they had to surrender, and they were taken into concentration camps, few of which survived the prison camps of the Second World War. Well, what on earth could have prevented America sending aid to their own troops in the Philippines? Well, because Uncle Joe Stalin was under attack from Operation Barbarossa in Russia. And what could be more important than saving the Soviet Union from collapse? And that's not just a cynical comment from me. That is an observation on the fact that the United States, from the day of Pearl Harbor's attack, put 90% of their military, air force, navy, everything, weapons, on saving the Soviet Union, 
pouring aid in. And you can see by the trillions of dollars of high-tech weaponry. I mean, we've looked at this in other campaigns on how capitalists saved the Soviet Union from collapse. And at any rate, President Herbert Hoover exposes this. And by the way, his book, Freedom Betrayed, was effectively sealed for 60 years. It was not allowed to be published um, because it would have destroyed the Democratic Party if people understood uh, the treachery involved and how it destroys, as many have said, that every war book um, about the Second World War has to be rewritten in the light of Herbert Hoover's Freedom Betrayed. And you could say the secret war, when those files came out that gave the decrypts from uh, Enigma and uh, the uh, GCHQ and uh, all the British um, monitorings, and you suddenly discover what the secret war was and what was really going on. Well, that does change a lot of narratives, makes a lot of history books redundant, and <laughs> proves a lot of films to be false. But at any rate, I would say Herbert Hoover's Freedom Betrayed is staggering. Um, I've mentioned some of these other books uh, like um, The Secret um, War and Pearl Harbor and uh, all kinds of intriguing things, a day of infamy and so on. Uh, so uh, also, you can go onto the Frontline Mission SA.org website and you'll find a military history. I've got videos on uh, the uh, attack on Pearl Harbor and on um, Freedom Betrayed and a whole lot of others to understand how capitalists saved the Soviet Union from collapse and so on. Also, Andrew Carrington Hitchcock, we've had the, the title, you go onto Frontline Mission SA.org website, you'll find the real story about Pearl Harbor. We've got PowerPoints, we've got videos, we've got audios on uh, Pearl Harbor and on the war with Japan and on the atomic bombs. Uh, there's a lot of different information uh, on this, including the assassination of George Patton, which is also related. Uh, that's uh, another issue here. But look in the military history and history files uh, of our Vimeo page on frontlinemissionsa.org, and you'll find a lot of visual evidence of uh, documenting uh, this real story behind the attack on Pearl Harbor. Dr. Hammond, thank you for throwing back the, curtains of li the curtain of lies and revealing the truth about Pearl Harbor. In closing, let's consider Psalm 5, verse 6. You shall destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and, de and deceitful man. Thank you very much for joining us for From the Frontline. God bless and good night.